Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this live episode of the Compliance Guy Coding and Compliance Roundtable. As always, I want to begin by saying thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my friends for a little while. I've stopped calling you special guests. You guys are my friends. So we'll have somebody else joining us here in just a minute once... uh, her connectivity issues uh, get sorted out. Uh, but until then, I want to welcome Terry Fletcher, Scott Kraft, and Christine Hall. Uh, this is our final uh, compliance coding and compliance roundtable for 2022. You guys don't look sad or happy about it. You're just kind of sitting there staring at me like, yeah, it is. Kind of on the fence. No, it's going to be a long two weeks, Sean. Yeah, Sean, really. It is going to be a long yeah. way. <clears throat> My podcast never ends. I have mine every week, every Tuesday. Sorry, I just can't help myself. It's I need an intervention. Well, you're, Terry, <laughs> you're, you're Terry Fletcher, so you oh, know what do you, what do you what do you want me to do? <laughs> it's an obsession. <laughs> so today, for our episode, we thought that we would basically talk about what practices should be preparing for in the new year. Because if nothing else, I think 2022 taught us a lot of lessons. At least it taught me a lot of lessons. I learned a lot of lessons uh, of what to and what not to do in a federal trial. Um, I learned a lot about making sure that you are not relying on just your uh, fundamental knowledge of a subject going into an administrative law judge hearing and that you need to really make sure that you have done your diligence, that you have the right LCAs, the right LCDs, the right NCDs in front of you. But there's a whole host of other things that I know we as a collective roundtable want to talk about because I think all of us would consider ourselves to be life learners, if that's a fair statement. And as my wife will attest, um, from the minute I open my eyes in the morning till the moment I close them at night, it is a continuous mistake. So with that said, let's start with Scott Craft. I want to start with you today. Um, what are some of the lessons that you learned in working with clients in 2022 that you were like, man, I wish I would have been better prepared for that, or I wish the client would have been better prepared for that. But now coming into 2023, I'm going to make sure that they understand the lessons that I went through. 
That's a that's a really good and deep question. Um, it, you know, I think I've learned, as I feel like I do every year, to be very deliberate in my thought processes. Uh, I think it's important to uh, not rush into solutions to difficult questions. Um, it, you know, I realize that's a little bit uh, of a general statement. Uh, I've really learned to, uh, you know, as I've started to think about, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit today, at least I think we are, as I've started to think about applying these guidelines that we're wrestling with to different places of service, it's really given me uh, a different way of viewing uh, a lot of different types of notes. It's given me a different way of trying to level set expectations for different providers uh, in different places of service. Uh, you know, I feel like the other thing I, I feel like I learned to do a little bit better every year uh, is to listen. Um, you know, I think that's an un, uh, unappreciated skill uh, in these times where everybody has a point that they need to make straight away. Um, uh, but certainly that is something uh, as well. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward. I'm, re I'm really jazzed about 2023 right now. I think it's going to be uh, a very interesting um extraordinary year in terms of provider auditing, billing, coding, all the things that we focus about compliance. I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be a very interesting compliance year with a lot of the changes that are going on. Uh, and as we start to lean into, you know, how different payers look at these service types, uh, you know, one of the things I said at our conference that we were at together uh, at the end of last week was, you know, back in 2021, when uh, these guidelines came into existence. I remember thinking to myself, boy, it's going to be a, a difficult thing if they ever try to apply these to inpatient places of service. So uh, that's going to be, I think, a very interesting thing as well. Now that yeah. it's here. Great, great points. So, Terry, let me let me come to you. So this year, 2022, we saw an incredible uptick in comprehensive error rate testing letters in the number of additional documentation requests, ADRs, that were coming from not only the federal and state payer programs, but from the commercial payers as well. Besides staff getting these letters and simply photocopying and shipping everything off to the insurance company without first uh, sharing it with their providers and other team members, what are some of the things that you experienced this year that you took away as lesson learned? And I want to make sure people coming into 2023 don't make those same mistakes that were made in 2022. Well, some of these might be a little frightening. So put your seatbelt on. <laughs> um, I'm sure some of you get this. I think Christy and I talked about this one time. I'm not sure, if Stephanie, if you get this or Scott, but I get these random emails, somebody saying, hey, Terry, I've listened to your podcast. Let's do on Sean or my own podcast. Um, I, I've got a referral from you. And I just need you to look at these records really quick to see if we're on the right track. Now I'm a little nervous. And they send unredacted records to my email without a contract, without a BAA. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I, can't, I can't be opening these up because that's a HIPAA violation. And they've already committed it just by sending it through straight email. So that's one thing. Um, I think one of the things that is concerning to me is there's still questions out there. And I want to say this, not in a politically correct way, but in a way where I don't want the listeners to feel like I am, you know, being negative or bashing anyone or saying anything that that's not positive. 
but I'm still getting questions that I think a lot of people should either know or know where to find the answer. And it's not that I'm not here for everyone. That, that I mean, that's what I do. I'm a consultant. That's what I do. But I think that when somebody's asking me in 2022 why they're getting denials when they bill a consult code to Medicare and Medicare hasn't recognized consults since 2010, it makes me very nervous. Or when, you know, somebody says, you know, I'm trying to bill for an additional vessel stent uh, in a cardiology practice, again, to Medicare when they haven't done that again, since they haven't paid that ever in the same coronary artery. I, it just makes me nervous to know why people are not being um, proactive and doing their own due diligence uh, for some things. I mean, obviously you have to go to an, an expert that you're comfortable with or somebody that um, you want to contract with, but there are times when you're just like, are we still asking these questions? And the one thing about sending records to people that you don't know <laughs> or have not engaged, engaged in a contract yet, people need to be really careful. Um, you know, the telehealth thing has exploded. I've been teaching how to do telehealth for 10 years, but then the pandemic hit and I had to pivot everything I knew to what was new because it's completely different. And just noting people saying, well, I heard somewhere that you could bill an office visit for audio only and then now having to pay a lot of money back because that's not correct. And they're like, well, Blue Cross lets us, so we're going to do it for everybody else. People just don't seem to be wanting to, you know, find out the, the facts about everything before jumping ahead and doing what either their doctor's telling them to do, what somebody else is telling them to do, you know, what they heard to do. And it, it's a little concerning to me because you and I have talked about this. We've all talked about this. This is the climate of the audit, not the year, the climate. And we are now in the, in the new auditing era, as Sean has put it. And so it's not if you get an audit, it's when everybody's watching. You know, so so that's kind of what I, I've learned this year and going into 2023 is to just be a little more diligent on explaining things probably at a, a more basic level that, hey, this is what you need to do before you move forward with this. So. Yeah, that's all great. Uh, great information, Terry. So, Stephanie, I want to come to you. Um, EMRs. Providers since the inception of EMRs have been extremely reliant on these systems, right? Um, macros, templates, whatever you want to refer to them as. And even after we hear and read about all of these nightmare situations that happen, right? Whether it's paying back a significant amount of money to an insurance company because you know, there, there were all sorts of misalignments, we'll call it, in the documentation, right? You know, the review of systems says one thing, but the examination says something completely opposite, right? What are some of the areas from your day in and day out auditing? And Christine, think about this question as well, because I want to get your perspective on this as well after Stephanie. What are, what are, the areas that you are finding patterns of behavior or issues that people need to pay very close attention to coming into 2023. We've talked about EMR since they were forced upon us, but we're still not learning from the mistakes. What are the things that you saw in 2022 that folks need to be aware of in 2023? So there's a lot to unpack here. 
So I'll just pick uh, one of them <laughs> for now. Um, but the, the constant use of copy and paste or carry forward has hurt the encounter in so many ways. Um, you know, we have issues now where we're seeing on some of our government audits where providers are being told that there's no medical necessity for cloning. Um, you know, everything looks the same. So, you know, when I think ahead to next year, I continue to see that to I continue to see that particular area to be a problem because now we're going to have to deal with things like data points and looking at going in and scoring the middle column of medical decision making. And that's been that's been somewhat of an issue in the office. But when I've started to put those, you know, audit goggles on for next year, looking at 2023, when I'm looking at things like ER notes, inpatient notes, um, it's going to be extremely problematic when we can't even tell where information's coming from, or if we do have identifying factors like a date, for example, or the name of a test, um, the providers are not showing any way that they particularly analyze the information for us to be able to apply it. And I know um, Scott and I have talked about this quite a bit, you know, going back and forth on, on things that we anticipate being asked next year quite a bit. Um, and one of the things we talked about was this data area because EMRs have made it so easy to either just click the button and blow the results in or carry everything forward so you're seeing things visit to visit. And um, the key of analyzing information is something that we're really trying to focus on based on what we've been talking about. It's not just a matter that information made it into a record. How is the provider reviewing it and using it as a part of that particular encounter? Um, one of the other things I've noticed that I'll just kind of caution on right now quickly is the um, emergency department seems to have um, what, what really appears to be a, a a pile of problems coming. And the reason that I say that is because the majority of the clients that I have, a lot of them do use the main EMR system of Epic that we see in a lot of hospitals. While the system is great, it depends on how the providers use it. And what I'm finding is that they are relying more on what we would look at for facility documentation and not realizing their responsibility and role from the profi side when we look to apply the guidelines so next year you know again with data when we just see the words labs ordered it's going to do no good to help assign credit for all of this work so it's really more so the smart tools that we talk about quite a bit that i see being quite uh, an issue going forward Great insight, Stephanie. Um, Christine, I want to I want to transition over to you because obviously, you know, I want you to think about the question that I posed to Stephanie and and along the lines of what she was talking about there. But what are also some of the additional areas that you're seeing? There's a lot of confusion with respect to, you know, compliance. Um, you know, with compliance on billing rules, on coding guidelines, things of that nature. So I know it's it's kind of morphed into that one aspect into now maybe two or three different areas. But Terry, I also want to get some of your thoughts on this as well. So I'll come to you in just a moment. So, Sean, this week I have been sending out my email to my clients um, asking them, have they reached out to their EMRs, EHRs? Have the updates been built in already for the way that we report the new E&M or how we select E&M? 
And I'm getting a lot of pushback that uh, they're not ready or they said they'll be ready or, and I'm looking for something more definitive. We're, we're basically two weeks out and what have those EMRs done for all these guideline changes? I mean, everything that we're looking at from an E&M perspective, but all of the, you know, almost 400 new CPT codes and how those are might be built into the EMR systems. The other thing that I have advised my clients is what about your macros? Because we've already identified macros. If you're using the same thing. So for example, patient here for follow-up, they do, they copy paste over the history and the problem list that by itself is two pages long. And then they have all of the review of systems, a full physical exam, all within normal limits. And then I have a list of diagnosis that I can't match in there. Did you even ask the patient how their hypertension has been? Because they're so used to using these click macros that just pre-populate and they're vague. Like Stephanie said, I have one practice that we have just agreed that we're not going to count data because it just lists that generic labs ordered or labs reviewed and no other information to support, which is really, really crippling the practice when it comes to reporting those E&M visits. The other thing that I'm seeing a lot is on my new clients or uh, consulting with, with different people out there that we talk about, do you have a compliance program in place? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, can I see the last audit report? What audit? Okay, um, let's see the meeting minutes. Well, I noticed that you don't have anyone represented from billing and coding in your compliance program. No, 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 we don't, we don't do that in our compliance program. Well, maybe we need to have a new definition of what is healthcare compliance, just straight from the OIG, where they talk about billing and coding and all of those wonderful examples that they gave us 22 years ago that we're still seeing today over coding, reporting the wrong NPI number, things of that nature. Um, so I think it's important that we get to the basics. What is compliance? And yes, it has everything to do with billing and coding and reporting um, documentation up to date, as expected, like you said, LCAs, LCDs, payer policies, understanding that all of that goes into what compliance is, as well as holding those EMRs accountable and making sure, I think that's the, the big word here, make sure that you are compliant. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Terry, let me come to you real quick because we we talked about some stuff, you know, earlier. You know, well, you and I are always talking about stuff. <laughs> but, you know, a, a couple of things that come to mind, right? So I, I want to think about auditors, right? And, and, and I want to be very careful on how I say this because I don't want to have it taken out of context. I think a lot of folks that are auditing medical records in hospitals or in medical practices are coders and coders do a wonderful job of abstracting information from a medical record to be able to validate the code selection made by the provider of care right i.e physician nurse practitioner pa whatever it may be do you think that there is a gap when audits 
are performed by coders, irrespective of whether they're certified or non-certified coders, versus when you have someone who has received formal training as an auditor, has extensive experience as an auditor, um, and, and if so, what would some of those differences be? Wow. Okay. So that's a really good question. One I was not prepared for, but let me, let me think about this because we've talked about it a little bit. So just from a conversational perspective, I think that as a coder, what, what coders do, and I know the audience, you know, if you have a different opinion, please put it in our, our chat box there, our conversation box, because this is interactive. That's why we do it live. But I think one of the things that I see a difference in is that coders tend to be a little more black and white. They look to see if this record states exactly what is parallel to the guidelines they have in front of them. As an auditor, just a perfect example, data points that Stephanie was talking about is more difficult than anything to help quantify a record, mainly because you can't bill or you can't report, or I should say you can't count, I keep using the wrong word, um, the review if you've ordered the test. You only get the order because that includes the review. Well, is anybody looking back to see if they ordered it from a previous, you know, you have to, because now if they're trying to count the review for today's visit, then they already got credit for it on the visit from prior. And I noticed that auditors are looking at that, but coders are not necessarily looking at that. They're looking at today's information only, which is important, but you also have to look at the record in its entirety. Um, one of the things I, I saw, so an office got in big trouble that I, they just asked me to audit about a hundred of their records over the last couple of weeks. And they had an on-site auditor that was just a, I don't, I don't want to say he's just a coder, was not a somebody trained in auditing. They were a coder, very good coder, by the way. If you looked at their coding information, very good coder, but they didn't understand auditing because it, they were telehealth visits and she was giving them credit for the EMR full exam. And so I'm like... <laughs> Um, can we look at that? I said, they're saying here that they did a cardiovascular exam, a skin exam, uh, I, they did a GU exam and all this. And I'm like, it was telehealth. Explain to me how that works. Cause you're better than me. And so she went, oh no. Yeah. So that was a problem. Um, but the other thing is, I think that it, it mostly employed coders. You don't want to upset your job. You don't want to, you know, upset the provider that you're auditing. As an independent auditor, I don't, <laughs> I don't worry about that. You're hiring me to find a problem, to help educate, to make sure, or to find that you're doing things correctly, to give you peace of mind. And by the way, we do find that it's not all Dr. Death. Um, we do find actually a lot of good things that are going on. But another example, and then I'll show, I know that we're going to throw it over to Scott. Um, the Sheridan split visit for, you know, 20 uh, 23. Here's a big thing that people aren't reading. Um, and you know, this is a really a problem is that they allow for non-face-to-face -face services to be included. If you're timing your visit, it doesn't mean that the non-face-to-face -face provider gets to report the service. Whoever reports the service has to have seen the patient face-to-face. -face. So that's actually hidden in not only CPT, but also in the final rule in CMS rules. And so you, you have to read the entire um, regulation, the resource on it before you audit a record. You can't just look at it from a coding perspective. Otherwise, it, you're you're going to lose something. And 
you're going to give credit where credit may not be due and that's and that's or miss something so i think that that that's a lesson that that unfortunately isn't always learned in making the transition great points scott i want to i want to ask you a couple of questions because your career i've gotten to be really involved with right um yes. from 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 the time from the time you and I started working together, I guess it's what fifteen, almost sixteen years ago, right? Somewhere it around has, there. It has. That's not. It's been at least that long. Okay, so you know your background for a lot of folks that don't know, and and I love how you explain it. Is that you know you have a degree in journalism. You were a journalist, and I tell people all the time, you're you're one. When when I look at the hierarchy in our organization of writers, I always look at you. And I look at Grant Huang, and then it kind of goes down the line from there as far as, you know, the, 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 the competencies, the skill, the ability. And you decided that, you know, even though you like being a, a journalist, you enjoyed having food more. So you wanted to get into a career that would actually allow you to stop eating ramen noodles. So, you know, I, I've gotten to watch your career, really. And, and, and for me, it's been one of the most rewarding careers to watch right because you, you came in as somebody who had fundamental understanding of guidelines regulations because of your research and your writing as a journalist and you you know you spent the time you studied you educated yourself and you became a coder and i want to talk about your your mindset and sort of what terry's been talking about and what i've been talking about with that transition in 2022, especially with really making that jump from coder to auditor and really what was involved in that. And now with you taking on more and more of the responsibilities as a compliance professional. Yeah. So I'll start by saying this, um, you know, and I think it feeds into the way in which I research and look at things when I audit, right? We have this old saying in journalism about uh, verifying information. And they, they used to say it in journalism schools. Like if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> and it's, it's a way of saying you need to validate all of these different things, right? You should never just accept at face value things that people tell you. And, you know, it relates to compliance in different ways, um, specifically when I think about some of the points that Christine made and that Terry made about the difference uh, between a coder and an auditor. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I have seen in notes before is a provider will say as part of their template documentation in the outpatient setting right now, I independently reviewed this x-ray and it showed whatever it showed, right? And so, you know, if you're a coder and you're not digging behind that, you might say, okay, we have an independent interpretation check, right? But then I go and I see, well, this is the provider who ordered this x-ray and on a separate line item, they're getting paid for it. And I don't know if they interpret independent to mean they did it alone, but I, you know, it's just a thing that I don't know. And so we, it, we are in some ways the last line of defense for some of these types of things. Like we have to make sure that's right. Uh, one of the things we talked about in our session last week that I know, um, uh, you know, Pam, who's with us today was in was, you know, if you're going into an inpatient note and you're looking at labs, not only is it an issue of 
am I looking at labs that were previously reviewed, but am I looking at labs that comprise a lab panel, but I don't realize it because they're listed individually? Uh, and how do I count that? Um, I had a, a group that I worked with recently who was crediting uh, three data points for flu A, flu B, and COVID, but they usually bill it as a panel, but they ran out of panels. They ran out of that test. So they were billing it independently. And I'm like, well, it doesn't change, at least in my view, the way you count it for credit. Uh, and so I think we we have to step out and, and be, uh, you know, I don't want to say logical or apply common sense because that's a whole separate conversation, but we have to really think about the principle and concept of medical necessity and, and how do you mean what you say and how do you document? So I had said at the outset that I had feared when these guidelines came out in 2021, how they would be applied in the office or in the inpatient setting. And Stephanie had talked about the ED. And to me, in theory, logically, an ED provider who's essentially the first provider seeing a patient who's potentially seriously ill is the provider who is most likely to be having conversations with specialists and other providers, potentially interpreting independently different types of tests. But when a patient's on day three of an inpatient stay and they're down a path, and all these providers keep saying they're talking to each other, right? And I, my feeling with data is that's what's my, my concern is that's what's going to happen, right? Like the breadth and depth of conversation is suddenly going to increase. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I think those are things that I have to be cognizant of because we have to tell the provider, look, you can document things and I see what you're documenting, but you do have to make sure that you're establishing the medical necessity and you have to appreciate what we may look at in the past. So we talked about uh, in, a, in a previous thing I did last week, orthopedics and this notion of discussion of surgery. If a patient's getting an injection and then it's followed by a discussion of, let's say the injection is losing its efficacy and we have to discuss surgery. Well, okay, I can carve out a modifier 25 for that. But if you do that every single time, at some point I'm saying, well, we should advance that conversation, right? Like I'm going to discuss surgery with the patient. The patient's going to go discuss it with his or her spouse and make a decision. So we're doing that in October, but we're doing it again in January and we're doing it again in April. And at some point, even though each note will on a standalone basis have that surgical discussion, uh, we have to look at, in the, at it in the aggregate. Uh, and one thing I do want to note um, and, and I will speak a little bit to a question that we saw about what if the physician notes they reviewed a CT scan when they received it, but then reviewed it in detail with the patient uh, at the follow-up, um, credit given in follow-up because they didn't receive credit previously. And I guess my question would be, why didn't they receive credit previously uh, if they reviewed it? And I think in some ways, those are things we have to think about, right? Like, like as I read that question, one of the things I think about is, what is the distinction between a detail review as it's being described there uh, versus a review? Now that review may occur outside of the patient and that's a different story. But when you think about compliance, and I don't think that's what Kendra is suggesting at all, but I did have a physician ask me under the 2021 guidelines, the physician basically said, so I can get credit for this for the order or the review, but not both. So what if I already have a level four in the order visit can I just sit on that credit until I see the patient the next time when I need the review to get a level four, right? And as a, as a compliance compliance centered person, I that's when I say, let's not, let's go ahead and not do that. So Stephanie, let me, let me, let me ask you, since we're, we're on this question, any, 
anything additional that you think about when you see this question? Because I, I agree with Scott and his mindset, but anything additional that you think about or any other guidance that you can provide to Kendra on handling this type of situation? Yeah, so I agree with what Scott said, and I would just suggest even thinking a step before that, before what Scott said. So when we have any kind of radiology, we first have to know, and, and meaning when I say we or you or me, we have to know for the organization where the test is being done. So did they order the test and the CT scans done on site? An outside radiologist does the interpretation. Um, is the patient completely going off-site to another entity to have that CT done? So the first step is to know that um, if the CT is being done internally, meaning the same tax ID is, is receiving the reimbursement, then we don't get credit for either, not, not the order, not the review, not the interpretation. Um, if it's something where you have an outside radiologist doing the read, but your physician does that initial, what they would call a wet read or looking at the initial results, then um, we can look at giving credit for the order, but not also for the review. Um, so we have to be careful when we think radiology to see if we can even come into the middle column to begin with. And then like Scott was saying, you know, we need to know the details as to how the provider is attempting to use that. Um, one of the things I would suggest and one of the things I know that we've been talking about through the different webinars and things that we've had here at NamUs is that, um, you know, stick to one method or the other. We typically are suggesting giving yourself credit for the order. And then the messy part of knowing when things were reviewed is not going to come into play as much. Um, I will say though, I recently met with a provider based on his workflow. Uh, he gives himself credit for the reviews every time and not the order, but I had to instruct him on ways to add in, you know, different headings into a template and to make that extremely clear as to the fact that he was doing reviews when the test took place so we don't also double dip going forward. And I would just add to that really quick and, I, and Kendra clarified her point about reviewed it when they received it without the patient being seen yet. You are entitled to credit. You're entitled to order credit. You're entitled to review credit. Sometimes something may be ordered ahead of a patient's visit, right? So I want to see you on the 17th, but before I see you, go get an MRI, but I'm doing that over the phone. I'm doing that through the EMR. I'm not seeing you, but when I see you, you're going to come in with the MRI. Um, so that's an instance where, you know, review credit might be available. And I know uh, Terry has a comment, but I, don't want, I wanted to add that part right quick. Yeah, my comment on this is something that there, there's kind of a, also a, a lesson here that you need to apply to everything you're doing. And I'm noticing now with the provider relief, fund, relief funding audits, you can't save for a rainy day. Okay. So this is where, you know, some providers got money for, you know, whether they wanted it or not for COVID uh, losses and some of them didn't spend it and they put it in an account and they said, I'm just going to use it if I need it. And they can't do that. You had to refund it. So let's bring it back to this concept of saving, saving in your back pocket, the review, if you didn't take credit, cause you're already at a level four, you know, when you were there, I don't recommend it. Now, am I giving you a best practices, no. you know, situation? I don't recommend that because they're also, and I've heard this on the AMA webinars, there's an assumption that when you place an order for a diagnostic, that you're going to give the patient the result. 
whether you've seen them first or not, and which brings up another kind of interesting mess, why are you ordering a diagnostic for a patient you haven't seen? How do you know that patient needs that? So that actually concerns me. I was actually involved in a huge audit for a Medicare Mac that they had a bunch of test orders for patients they didn't see to basically bypass um, you know, the, the time it takes to see a new patient and then order that. And that's a problem. Where's the medical necessity? Because of, um, because of an, a symptom, a patient called in and said they have over the phone. Patients can say that they've got indigestion when in fact they're actually having a heart attack. So you, you, can't, you can't make those assumptions either without evaluating the patient. And so I have a problem with that all, you know, ordering labs, ordering diagnostics, ordering anything before a patient's actually been seen in real time. So um, yeah. I have an urgent care center. Oh my gosh. Um, I was actually talking to Sean about it. I think I forwarded him the, the note that wants to do a yeah. standing order. <laughs> Remember that, Sean? They wanted to do a standing order yeah. of patients just, just picking up the order and coming in and, and going and getting an extra, going and getting something based on just what they're complaining of, not what they've been evaluated for. And so just coming back to that one data point of um, ordered or reviewed, you have to be careful with this because AMA has said, and they've said it in every update they've done on their webinars, that if you order it, there's an assumption that you're going to review that with the patient. You're going to give results. And so you, you can't kind of save things in your back pocket. So do I, we do we I really like I really like this statement by Pam and and I wanna I wanna get all of your thoughts. And and Scott, I'm sorry, I know you were getting ready to say something. Um, but I, I agree with her. And you know, it would be a lot more simple to order, or it would be simpler if order of tests wasn't an option since the intent is to credit only when the results are analyzed as part of the MDM for the visit. I agree. I agree. With Pam. I agree any, too. Any, any, any other thoughts, Scott? Yeah, Terry. I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's hard to design something in writing that pleases everybody. And the only, th I think their, their intent when they writ the, can't speak today, their intent when they designed this the way that they did was that more frequently these days, you do not return to the office to get your results, depending upon what you're having done. And so the whole idea is, I'm going to be resulted at some point via, you know, the the practice management system. And so I, I the mechan the, the cleanest mechanism to credit the provider is when they order it and say, well, the results are baked into that, because we're less likely to have the patient simply returning in every instance just to hear, okay, your labs are fine. Um, that's my thought on it. Terry, I do, when we have okay. a second, want to look at one comment on here that would, may may get us the two of us going. I know. I did well, independent I wanna, interpretation, there, right? And there it is. <laughs> and okay. there it is. Oh, okay. I know Scott so, and I go back I, and I forth we, on this. Yeah. I think we were all, I think we all had this one <laughs> on our mind, but I'm going to, I'm going to give Christine the first shot at this. Oh, and then see, we'll Scott go and I don't get to argue horn, about okay? it. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I've been yeah, in the I'll background though, commenting. So, so Lee, Lisa Chavez Miller, thank you for posting this. And she says, what about when a provider orders an x-ray prior to being seen? Then when the patient comes, they do an independent interpretation. Would you give credit for ordering or is the independent interpretation appropriate? I think this is such a great question because you know what? Lisa's not alone in thinking this. I can't tell you how many times this question comes in. Mm -hmm. I'm sure to Terry, your your subscription channel, you know, Christine, yours. I know it comes into NamUs. So 
nope, Lisa, you didn't start anything. I think this is going to be a fantastic, uh, I think this is going to be a, a fantastic conversation. So Christine, let's kick it off with you and then let's go around the horn. So Lisa's question just gave me more questions and kind of what we were talking about with Terry and with Scott. The first thing I want to know is why are we ordering x-rays prior to the patient being seen? If it's a new patient, you haven't even established care with them. What's the medical necessity for ordering it? So uh, again, that's, that's my big question is why are we doing that? not only from a compliance perspective, but also from a liability, a risk management perspective, like you're ordering tests on someone that you've not seen yet, or you're ordering it based on um, maybe a phone call that the patient had. So that, there's my number one credit, uh, number one, like red flag, and then independent interpretation. So you're looking at the raw data of something that you ordered, um, Again, are you billing for it? There's more questions here. Are you billing for that x-ray? Are you having it done internally? Is it coming from another area? You know, did you send them out for that MRI? So many more questions come up before that even we even get to that point. And my understanding of the independent interpretation is you didn't order it and you didn't do it in office. So why would you get independent interpretation? Yeah, you know, so I don't think so. I actually don't think a lot of us are going to argue about this. I think a lot of us kind of agree because my my thing, and again, this is maybe journalism, Scott, just thinking about words and what they mean. I don't know how something's independent when you're the one who ordered it, uh, and and I there are people who disagree about that, but that is one of the hills I I'm semi dying on because it's like if you order it, you are not independent of it. And the scenario that I'm thinking about, I will preface this by saying about the only thing I scenario I could think about with the x-ray as a old runner who keeps breaking things is the patient who goes to like urgent care or a different setting has a mm -hmm. diagnosis of a break. The patient is referred to orthopedics, can't get in for a couple of weeks. And orthopedics says, I want to see you on Tuesday, the 24th, and we're going to start with an x-ray like that sort of makes sense to me in some ways because the the trail has been set but what my concern is is we have these large entities where a provider orders something and the rule of the entity is radiology bills all the reads and so something gets ordered it goes to radiology for an interpretation because that's the rule and then it bounces back over to this ordering orthopedist or whomever and that provider comes behind it and says, well, I did an independent read. Now, you know, there's a school of thought that I have some sensitivity to uh, that I've heard uh, from other people about, well, you know, the patient may be doing an, the patient may be having something ordered. It's going to go to radiology, but the patient's in urgent care, or more of an acute setting. And that provider has to do the wet read to treat the patient prior to the radiologist doing the read. And if people with more power than than I have in this world, which is appropriately very little, say that that's okay, you know, I audit to the rules that are put in front of me. But the question I always ask as, again, somebody who tries to deal in logic is if the if that provider is skilled enough to do render an interpretation and report a findings, why don't they just bill it? <laughs> you know, and I, I don't, and I understand the mechanics of it, but where it creates a compliance concern for me is I have worked with some clients where I see this 
explosion of independent interpretations that follow that format where it's not even necessarily urgent. It's, well, I order it, it goes to radiology, they interpret it, it comes back to me, and now I have it, and I'm seeing the patient in follow-up, and I'm saying, I independent inter independently interpreted the patient's ankle x-ray, and yes, it's broken. <laughs> it's like, what are you, what have you done to accomplish anything to support that level of credit? And so if we want to carve out scenarios where wet reads are appropriate, I wouldn't object to that. My concern is that that's the thing that I'm seeing. And I find it uh, very concerning because it elevates, it may, it turns threes into fours strictly for that reason. And if you, if you get into that practice pattern and you say, well, if I were to go to this two doctor orthopedic practice over here in a small town, they do all their own reads. They don't have everything going to radiology necessarily. So they do it, they read it, they bill it, they're done with it. But the exact same scenario comes over to this other practice that has a burgeoning radiology department that does all the reads. And suddenly we're saying that these orthopedists are getting independent credit. Like that's concerning to me. I, I agree. And Terry, I, I know you're going to say something, but I want to, I want to tee you up for this. Okay. So let me, let me share something with you. So we're talking about standing orders and we're talking about are they or are they not an actual order? So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services says this. Medicare defines any order or orders that does not specifically address an individual pa patient's unique illness, injury, or medical status. Remember the key term unique illness injury or medical status as not reasonable and necessary as required by law okay by law <laughs> medicare does not accept such standing orders as supporting medical necessity for the individual patient there it is right there so terry let me go ahead and um let me go ahead and, and, and get your thoughts on that. Well, I think one of the things that um, was brought up is individual. You know, they're trying to talk about the patient you're talking about today. And one of the things that is really important. Okay. So for those of us that are here on the, the podcast, so many of you out there are thinking, you know, oh, we love, or have told us, you, we love hearing you, you love hearing us and everything. You know, you, you look at us as subject matter experts. Thank you for that. We know a lot of you are also experts out there. Um, but we continue to learn and hear things that all of a sudden we're like, ding, 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 that makes something that's interesting. What have I learned from Christine today? I never stop saying that now. People are sick of me about it. But that's what something I love about her because she's like, what did you do today with Scott? Scott has told me how to define words. So if you can't find it in the record, go to the definition, independent um, management, um, you know, uh, looking at when I'm looking at prescription drug management. Um, you know, consultant, things like that. So I've started going to my dictionary. And if I've got an argument with somebody and saying, okay, I, I just did a, on my CodeCast podcast, I did a prescription drug management one because everybody's still confused about what that means. And it can't just be listing um, from Sean, you know, the thing about um, defensive versus what's actually in the law. Sean has said on a numerous occasions, 
if it's not published guidance, it's opinion. And so that's a big deal. And Stephanie, I love Stephanie for her fraud insurance comment. That was cracking me up. And I'll never forget that, that somebody told her, maybe you should tell your provider to get fraud insurance so they can go ahead and do what they were doing. So we learned from each other as well, who's on this panel. But one of the things, just circling back to this question that, that we're talking about on data points, it's so important to look at the definition of independent. And if you ordered it, you lost your independence at that point, in my opinion. Now, one of the caveats here that we haven't talked about is ER. Stephanie brought up a great point. ER is a mess right now, especially going into 2023, because there was actually this big thing on LinkedIn from somebody who's part of, I think it's the American Academy of ER Physicians. I actually think I tagged Deshaun and, and um, Christine on it. And they were like, what are you tagging me for? But there was a conversation that went back and forth about if an ER doctor um, orders an EKG, then they can they can actually document an independent interpretation of it. I'm like, but you're ordering it. They said, yes, but because there's no doctor to read it at that point, now we're, we get the independent interpretation. I'm like, uh, does the ER doctor not have skills to read an EKG? And then I got crickets. They're like, oh, we didn't really think of it that way. So, I mean, if you have the skills to do it, obviously, you know, then you should just do it and you shouldn't try to up your code. Like Scott says, we're going from threes to fours here. That's a really big deal if you don't have the support for that. But it, it's just, it's interesting because we have to go back to basics sometimes. And if you're not getting what you need from the rules and regulations, go to your dictionary. What does this mean? What does it mean to be independent? What does management mean in the prescription drug management? And actually it's funny, there's four definitions and one has to do with healthcare. And, you know, what does it mean to be a consultant? Um, what does emergent mean? That's a really big thing when you're trying to bill for things that are you trying to get to the hospital? Is it really emergent or is it really more because they have the equipment? I was talking to Sean recently that somebody tried to go from a level two getting hit in the shoulder with a soccer ball to a level four because they had to send the patient from urgent care, who was 13, by the way, and no issues to the hospital because they didn't have an x-ray machine. They want to take an x-ray. Well, that doesn't make it a, a moderate just because you don't have the equipment. So, you know, that's that's where we're getting into all kinds of, I don't know, gray, not gray areas, but areas where, unfortunately, as consultants, we have to not just bring you back to the rules, but we have to bring you back to best practices so you don't get in trouble. <laughs> and that's where, and have to hire Sean and say, help me, because I really screwed up. So <laughs> we're trying to get you to the point where you don't have to do that. But I'd love to hear Stephanie's take on some of that because I'm sure you've dealt with it. Yeah. So I agree with what you're saying there, Terry. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's just going to come down to, first of all, streamlining internally. Um, that's one of the things I try to talk about, especially when we get into things that can be gray or messy or confusing. Um, you know, we're, we're getting close to the end of the year. What has your department done internally to hash this stuff out? Um, Scott and I, we were in a, a team meeting over a month ago or so where we just sat down and, and talked through everything and said, okay, who, who's got issues here? Who's seeing two different sides here? Where are the gray areas? How are we going to handle this? Because one of the things I see is an issue, you know, even talking about everything we've been saying with giving credit for the order or the review. What if you have a coding department and half is doing it one way or half is doing it another? You start to cover for each other. Um, things get messy. You don't know who did it which way. You're coming up with different levels of service. And, you know, even just with ordering and reviewing, 
even putting in independent interpretation aside, that can be the, the determining factor between a three and a four as well. So if everyone's not understanding, number one, how the workflow is set up, who owns equipment, how the billing is set up, following the money on reimbursement, and then on top of it, if you don't create a consistent policy internally, I do think there's going to be a lot of issues there. Um, because ultimately, we have to keep in mind that if an insurance is asking for these records next year, they're not going to know off the bat you know, what we were thinking when we reviewed a record. Um, and, and just like we've been saying here that we are defaulting more so to that order, that's probably what the insurance auditors are going to be doing as well. So if you're doing it differently, you need to have consistency, you need to have standards in place. And, and I would just add to that consistency and standards around some of these issues that we're talking about with inpatient notes as things stay in the note from day to day to day to day to day. You know, you have to know internally what has already been reviewed. Uh, you know, I'm doing a paper chart or I just finished a paper chart of inpatient notes, paper chart review. So one and a half hands tied behind my back because I could only see the one note that's in front of me. But when that note is dated October 17th and you're including a lab result from September 20th, I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Right. But that's an easy one. And so I think that that there has to be an understanding you know, because I think internally, whether you code or audit, you know, you are a, a part of a compliance team that, you know, needs to be centered on making sure that you're getting the right defensible result. And so those are things uh, I think to be thoughtful about. Those are things that if you feel like you're in an organization where the, those things are not being, you know, handled in the right way, those things are not being counted in the right way, then then that is something I would speak up about because I think that, you know, I, I've been, I've seen these storm clouds coming for two years because I know how much clutter is in impatient notes. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, the dawn is here, right? And so I think it's, it's a real risk factor. Yeah, I have just one last thing and Scott will probably get a kick out of this because he remembers the pain. Um, we had a client a while back when 2021 guidelines started where they actually wanted us to dig into the past billing AR records to see if their entity billed an x-ray, for example. And then if they didn't bill it, now that, you know, you cross the threshold of 2021, they wanted us to give credit for a reviewer and interpretation. I thought it was pure insanity. Um, and, and it was an extremely painful process just trying to appease and go through that part uh, that they were requesting. But, you know, realistically, you know, even if if I worked for for a hospital, we'll say, that is asking me to do that and I'm an internal employee, realistically put on the hat of that insurance auditor, nobody is digging back to help you out to give you that additional credit. So you've got to think of the whole picture and, and just be ready as a team to to attack it together. All right, Christine, give us your thoughts. Well, my thoughts are, as we circle back to what we were talking about when we began, moving into 2023. So I think it's important that we sit down and we look at what our, our goals are for 2023. Everything from you know, now's a great time to schedule your compliance meetings, but make sure that you've got your educations in place. I know a lot of providers 
are hesitant um, in bringing in education for their staff. And, and I think that is one of the biggest downfalls. So I'm going to recommend in 2023 that you have at least two educations. One, revise your compliance education. Let's talk about it again. False claims. Let's give examples. Let's also talk about the new code changes and how they might apply to your particular specialty. And then maybe midway through the year when you get your compliance audit results back, have another education of those opportunities, whether it's to mitigate risk or whether it's because we found uh, revenue options that we're not channeling into or just how to make our documentation better, bomb proof, right? I like that one. For example, let's talk to our providers and give them some good examples. I, I like to talk about the problem complexity that we're working with now and how there's not one diagnosis that fits into any of those problem complexity boxes. So for example, if I'm taking my meds and, and doing what I'm supposed to, my blood pressure is at goal, then that's maybe a low type of complexity or maybe even a minimal complexity. But if, you know, it's the holidays and I've been eating what I want, maybe having going to a few parties and my doc's got to have a talking to with me, well, that might increase that complexity. Or if none of that's working and he needs to change my plan of care, add a med or maybe increase a med, order a test, send me for a referral, that might be a moderate complexity. And if I walk in the door and I'm in hypertensive crisis, you got about 20 minutes to do something or ship me off to the hospital, right? So I kind of look at it that way. Give practices some good examples of, of diagnosis and, and how it's reported in the medical records that we can really move forward with that's, that's sound, right? And that's going to come from that education. So that's where I'm going to wrap up for 2022. Excellent. All right. So that's going to bring us to the end of our Coding and Compliance Roundtable. I can't tell you how much I have thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with Stephanie, Scott, Christine, Terry. And today, unfortunately, Paul Spencer was not able to be with us, but he was here in spirit. Want to say thank you to every single one of y'all who has tuned in, logged on, and hung out with all of us throughout the course of uh, the second half of this year. We greatly appreciate you. We can't wait to be back again in 2023. Uh, tomorrow, Terry Fletcher, Eric Rubenstein, and I are going to be doing a roundtable on where we've been, where we're at, and what we need to be prepared for in 2023. This is a National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists webinar. There are still some seats available, so if you're interested, please join us. Remember, if you're interested in getting more information about the services offered by any of our panelists, you can reach out to uh, thecompliancesguide.com, doctors-management.com, terryfletcher.net. And I'm going from memory on this one. I believe it's sterlingglobal.com. Sterlingglobalsolutions.com. So, sterlingglobalsolutions.com. That's a mouthful right there. I know. All right. But one thing that I have learned in 2022 that I will not repeat in 2023 is. I will never sell another Christmas tree. <laughs> All right, y'all, we are out of here. Take care. Have a wonderful new year. Terry and I will be back with our final hashtag Terry Tuesday episode tomorrow, December 13th. 
So until then, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.